This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, September the 22nd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. I'm sounding a little nasally today. I apologize for that. Even though I said I was not going to stay up late and watch football, I did. I was with a husky, and uh, I might be allergic to dogs, even though I love them. So if I sneeze today, I apologize and blame Hazel the Husky. Coming up in the first hour of the show, it's the weekly news panel. Michelle McQuig and Juita Gupta stopped by to share their thoughts on the tensions brewing between India and Canada amid allegations over the killing of Hardeep Singh Nijar. And there's a new federal party that aims to take a centrist approach. You'll hear all about the Canadian Future Party. And privacy issues are coming to light after Canada Post was caught sharing some consumer data. I've got some thoughts on that and on junk mail more broadly. So strap in. That's going to be a good conversation. But the hour begins with the top story of the day. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has arrived in Canada for an official visit. Rob Westgate has the agenda. The Ukrainian president and his wife arrived in a plane adorned with the Ukrainian flag, and the plane's crew placed the blue and yellow flag outside the window of the cockpit upon landing. The pair were greeted on the tarmac by a small delegation that included Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Finance Minister Christian Freeland, and Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. The wartime leader has a busy Friday planned, including meetings with top Canadian officials and members of the Ukrainian-Canadian community. He's also set to address Parliament. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. Zelensky just had an official visit with U.S. President Joe Biden. Andy Field has that side of the story. Presidents Biden and Zelensky meeting with aides at the White House as Mr. Biden announced a new round of defensive weapons and aid for Ukraine. Because that's what this is all about, the future, the future of freedom. President Zelensky grateful for the life-saving support. Thank you for all these 575 days. Yes, and thanks to American people. A number of House Republicans want to cut that aid to Ukraine. Andy Field, ABC News. And coming back to Canadian Parliament, the Liberal government has introduced legislation to remove GST on materials and certain labour related to the construction of new rental developments. Finance Minister Krisha Freeland says this is about following up on priorities from caucus meetings last week. Our Prime Minister promised last week with all of us standing beside him, that we would take these actions, and we are delivering on that today. There is also legislation that aims to give the Competition Bureau more authority in dealing with food prices in grocery stores. Innovation Minister François-Philippe Champagne outlines that policy. We will give more power to the Competition Bureau to conduct and complete more effective investigations through compelling the production of information. Second, we will make it easier to block mergers that are not in the best interests of consumers. 
Switching over to a transit story from the United States, there's a new train line that links Orlando and Miami, Florida. It's the first privately funded passenger train service in the United States in over a century. Jennifer King has more details. Florida's Bright Line will begin running trains between Miami and Orlando on Friday, reaching speeds of 125 miles per hour between the state's biggest tourist hubs. It becomes the only other high-speed rail in the nation outside of Amtrak's Acela Line, which operates between Washington and Boston. The three-and-a-half-hour route is a $5 billion bet by Bright Line's owner, Fortress Investment Group, Bright Line's CEO, Mike Ryanger. The idea of my car is the only way for me to get where I need to go is being challenged by a new product. Passenger Kelly McKenna says she likes the convenience. You get coffee, you can work on it, like it's really easy and I didn't have a car. Brightline plans possible extensions to Tampa and Jacksonville. If the venture is a success, it could lead to more high-speed train lines between major cities in the U.S. I'm Jennifer King. You've heard me say this before, more high-speed rail and transit in densely populated areas. There's no need to take an airplane from Orlando to Miami. If you can get there three hours comfortably on a train, that sounds pretty darn good. More trains in densely populated areas to get you places faster. I will say the five and a half, six hours that it takes to get to Montreal on the train, it's wearing on me a little bit. It's wearing on me, but... Uh, I'll take it. I'll take it. I survive. I survive. I will pull through. But more trains. Choo-choo. That's what I say. Let's go from the news to the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked sort of a related question to the rant that I just went on. How do you feel about politicians flying for short trips? The Prime Minister caught a little bit of flack for flying down to New York for his visit to the UN General Assembly. So at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, 0% of you said good, 60% of you said bad, and 40% of you said, bah, I don't care. Studio Brock tweets in, I think politicians should have to take public transit whenever possible, followed by cars or trains for longer trips and planes only when necessary. I also wonder how many short trips opposition leader Mr. Pierre Polyev has taken by plane when he was in government with the Harper administration. Interesting point there, uh, Studio Brock. Although I don't think Mr. Polyev particularly cares, he was just looking to criticize the Prime Minister for not walking his talk when it comes to being carbon efficient. I don't think Mr. Polyev worries too much about a carbon footprint based on his climate policy, or depending on who you listen to, is lack thereof. Today's Daily Poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. It's all about the world of website design because I've got a bee in my bonnet. One of the largest banks in Canada decided to redesign their website in the last couple of weeks, and it is awful. Oh, sure, it's probably aesthetically pleasing and all slick and loads beautifully on your cell phone screen. Here's the thing, major Canadian bank. You no longer have any of the relevant information of what's in my accounts. How am I supposed to keep track of my money if you don't have any of the information? Listen, it's not 
Miss America here. We're not trying to build beautiful, sick, web slick websites. Usability, usability, usability. Do better, major Canadian bank. I would actually like to see the information in my accounts, please. What a bunch of jabronis. Okay, so the question to you at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, how do you feel about the evolution of website design? What do you like? What are your complaints? But the basic question, great, good, bad, terrible. I'm landing on terrible. The shift towards websites that are more optimized towards uh, tablets and phones has absolutely made navigation so much worse. I need information, especially in important places like banks. Alex Smythe, you're back in the mix today. How are you feeling about the evolution of website design? In terms of website design itself, I'm landing somewhere between good and bad. I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll side on the good. I'll, I'll take the more positive approach and route on this one. I've seen a lot of progress in, in many different areas. There's still areas and in, in instances where I feel like, okay, this is falling short. This is not working well. I, I agree with you, Dave. There is at points an over-reliance on making it more uh, user-friendly on other devices than an actual website and on an actual computer, which can be very frustrating. Uh, the one thing I do like is when you are on a mobile device or a phone or a tablet or whatever, you can typically find uh, like a little link that will uh, say, oh, do you want the desktop version instead? Oftentimes, that's where I'm going to go because you'll mm -hmm. get more information. It'll yes. be more set up for an actual good user experience. My biggest gripe complaint still is when it comes to zooming on oh, yeah. phones and tablets because... There are some sites that do it well, that okay, the information gets blown up and it, it becomes more legible. Other ones, especially when it comes to things like maps and stuff, you, you keep pinching in, but then it's like the names of the roads just continue to shrink <laughs> with you. And it's like, they don't they don't increase the font of the road. It's like, I'm trying to see what road this is. What's, what's the name of this street? Please tell me. I don't need to know how wide the street is and, and what building is there. I just want to see what the road name is. And, and that seems to be the ongoing struggle. So if... Alex, if I, if I were to read between the lines there, one yeah. of the complaints or one of your concerns is a lack of information or the withholding of information due to aesthetic design. And that's exactly where I'm mm. at. And that's why I'm so cranky this morning. You have all this information available to give to me, but you're not giving it to me. Mm -hmm. That and uh, it's also even just from a base accessibility uh, viewpoint. I, I was looking at a website yesterday and the contrasting, what, it was such a weird choice. It was like a green background Ugh. with like orangey font. Ugh. And, and I was like, how can anyone read this? This is the worst thing I've ever come oh, across. Oh my gosh. But, but again, that's a creative choice for a very specific website. That's not a, a broad uh, kind of um, uh, choice that most places will make. But when it comes to that zooming, that is something yep. I still see quite a bit. So I wanna see that improved, but there's been progress. I still remember where you'd have things like, oh, like flash players or other like uh, multimedia elements that just wouldn't load or they wouldn't be compatible with half the website. So you're constantly having like crashing videos or this or that, it's come a long way. It's been more adaptable, more user-friendly and, and more ingrained, but that was uh, really kind of where I'm at right now. Amanda Shikarchi, where are you at when it comes to the evolution of website design? 
I definitely think that there has for sure been lots of improvement, you know, much easier to navigate and more screen reader friendly. My only, you know, criticism as it will is if you're designing a website don't make it clunkier than it needs to be mm. give me the basic features give me the articles for example but don't overpopulate the home screen with a bunch of links that'll take you to one thing to another because with a screen reader that's when things get a bit difficult because you're trying to figure out what to click on mm -hmm. but there has definitely been positive changes you know from an accessibility point you have things like you know twitter or facebook or instagram having the alt text for photo descriptions mm. which is a really nice feature that i use or you have you know the layout of other apps that are or websites that are just very easy to navigate sometimes what i like to do is if i know the thing that i'm looking for has an app Sometimes the app version is a bit more accessible than the website itself. So I usually go for let's download the app. Outstanding. I like that both of you brought positivity to this conversation, but the <laughs> B remains in my bonnet, and I'm going to take that out on Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta after the break. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, feedback at ami.ca or 1-866-509-4545. Feedback at ami.ca is the email address. 1-866-509-4545 is the voicemail. Coming up after the break. Tensions are escalating between Canada and India amid allegations of India's involvement in the killing of Hardeep Singh Nijar. Michelle McQuake and Juita Gupta get together for the news panel to discuss the story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, so that means it's time to assemble the weekly news panel. Welcoming back to the show, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Dave. And hello, Michelle. Hello, friends. All right, let's jump into a pretty serious topic for our first one. Can Canadian intelligence shows that India's government may have been involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen, according to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Hardeep Singh Nijar was a Sikh community leader. Nijar was gunned down in a BC parking lot three months ago. Trudeau discusses the implications. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open, and democratic societies conduct themselves. Opposition leader Pierre Polyev also reacted to the news. If these allegations are true, they represent an outrageous affront to Canada's sovereignty. Our citizens must be safe from extrajudicial killings of all kinds, most of all from foreign governments. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh offered his reflection. To hear the Prime Minister of Canada corroborate a potential link 
between a murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil by a foreign government is something I could never have imagined. Singh also addressed the Sikh community directly. Governments around the world are trying to silence you. The Indian government and the Modi government specifically is attempting to silence you. But truth cannot be silenced. Justice cannot and will not be silenced. The news developed throughout the week. Canada expelled an Indian diplomat in response to the investigation. India expelled Canadian diplomats. India has also halted all visa services for Canadians. Indian External Affairs Ministry spokesperson Arunbam Bagchi feels Canada has its own work to do when it comes to security. I think we should look at it on a larger issue of there are elements linked to organized crime, linked to uh, terrorists, secessionists or extremists who are operating freely. They're being politically condoned. They seem to have a free run. And we would expect that the Canadian government takes action against that as regards the Indian origin or Indian community or Indian diaspora. Michelle, this is a complex geopolitical story. And again, it's really important to note that the intelligence the Prime Minister has referenced is not publicly available. So mm -hmm. we're really yeah. relying on, on allegations here. But what questions do you want to raise with the panel? Well, it's one of those situations where it is a very complex story, a sensitive story, anything to do with, with issues of, of sovereignty and geopolitical complexities like this need to be handled with a lot of caution. But it is now an issue that, A, has dominated the news agenda for a week, but it's now starting to affect everyday people too. The suspension of visas uh, officially got about 80,000 people caught in the crosshairs of, of this particular spat, uh, which is also not likely to go anywhere at all anytime soon. There's no way that this issue is going to disappear in the next little while. In fact, uh, there's a lot of speculation that this is opening a new and very difficult potential chapter in Canadian Indo-Canadian relations. So there's a lot to get around here in terms of not just the impact on everyday people, but the political way forward. Uh, you talked about the, the fact that the intelligence has not yet been made public. That is a whole other thread that this is potentially worth exploring because uh, there are questions raised around that and very strong schools of thought on both sides. There, there's, there's so much to unpack with the story that I'm mm. sure is going to be at year's end one of the ones that we're still talking about. Joita, I've got some really specific questions here, but obviously you've got some freedom to wander around because of the sensitivity of this story. But the first question that comes to mind to me is why Prime Minister Trudeau chose to raise this issue so publicly. Well, I understand that the Globe and Mail was about to break the story, and I think the Prime Minister, in a bid to get out in front of that, uh, chose to raise the issue uh, himself. I am also given to understand that Prime Minister Trudeau tried to raise this issue with Narendra Modi, Prime Minister Modi in mm -hmm. India, when mm -hmm. they had a visit there in yeah. June, I believe, and it did not go down well. So I think it's really a question of, of optics for the Trudeau government and trying to get out in front of the story and do as much damage control as possible. That's really the crux of the issue here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree with you there, Juita. On the first day of Parliament, especially in some of the conversations around foreign interference, more on the China file, but the Prime Minister had exactly. oftentimes been seen as being a two steps behind the intelligence. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there was a sense of, okay, we know that this is going to come out and I want to look like I'm ahead of it. Michelle, I, 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 I'm someone who, who has a distaste for talking about political optics, 
But I think in this case, that's kind of where I lend. Why do you think the prime minister chose to raise this so publicly? Yeah, I, you know, I, I largely agree with you both. Uh, the other aspect that was influencing the timing, I suspect, was the fact that there was a pretty frigid exchange between Trudeau and, and Modi at the at the G20 the week before that had not yeah, gone unnoticed. Yeah. Uh, a trade mission that had been in, in the works for some time set for the fall got cancelled. Uh, so there were lots of questions swirling on what exactly was going on with India because clearly something was. Uh, there's also a lot of speculation that this has been in fact raised through the diplomatic back channels with India for quite some time and that resistance was was not softening in any way and there was no real appetite to engage and there that school of thought goes there this was effectively the only thing left so all these things combined with the pressure uh that the government faced on the china file and foreign interference more broadly this is definitely one of the issues of the year is foreign interference mm-hmm. different face or different face on the same issue and given all of the hoopla that ensued over the lack of public inquiry although now one is finally underway on um, china i don't think the government had a whole lot of choice on this Joita, this escalated really quickly this week in terms of the international uh, diplomacy and the deterioration of that relationship with India, essentially accusing Canada of harboring terrorists inside its borders. What do you make of that response from India? Um, well, the sort of the diplomatic tit for tat that you're seeing in this situation is quite frankly par for the course. Um, it's not surprising that the first thing that happened is uh, Canada expelled diplomats, uh, Indian diplomats, and vice versa. Uh, that, I think, is something we also saw happen in, in the case of some of the tensions with China. So nothing here is really unusual about the response. Um, I think that it's not like I, it's not surprising to me in any case that india would deny any direct responsibility for for this particular incident that's again par for the course for a government uh i mean the if there's any alleged involvement from the indian government to keep that covert and we know that india is not alone in doing things like this as part of their foreign policy again oh, certainly. allegedly certainly yeah you know, uh, again certainly, allegedly yeah. if it yeah. if the indian government had anything to do with it the united states britain israel they're all they're all sort of in the same boat here the part that i think and this speaks to michelle's earlier point about the day-to-day ramifications the part i think that has a lot of people worried is the suspension of visas and i can see a lot of people getting caught in the crosshairs but it is also a way in which the government of India is then choosing to apply pressure on the Canadian government and yes. mobilizing and mobilizing the Indo-Canadian community to say, listen, you can't get travel, your relatives can't come to visit, um, you know, things like trans, like, you know, in, 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 transnational adoptions are probably going to get snarled. And there's a lot of people who want to adopt from India. So there's all of these things happening. And I think it's the day-to-day implications that are more interesting. But in terms of the diplomatic back and forth that we're seeing, there's nothing there that's I mean, it's all very upsetting to contemplate, but there's nothing really there that took me by surprise. Michelle, what do you make of India's response? I I, I mean, the tensions got turned up on this fast. No kidding, really fast. Um, and I, yeah, I find it very striking, actually. Then the part that jumps out at me is, I'm, like, I'm with Joita, the diplomatic tit for tat is not that shocking in and of itself. But what jumped out at me the most, apart from, Joita put it well, in terms of mobilizing the, the Indian public with the, the visa provisos, but... The, the propaganda campaign is also quite interesting. 
you have now had the Indian government putting out notices warning Indian students here that they could be in danger. Anecdotally, some Indian colleagues of mine have started hearing from family and friends back home saying, are you okay? Are you safe? So there is now a pretty active propaganda campaign. The, the messaging targeting international students is a really clever move on their part in terms of the propaganda because we know that we've talked on this panel about the degree to which foreign students contribute to the financial well-being of Canadian post-secondary institutions. Mm, so that mm. is, a, is a pretty well-targeted blow, if that's what they're going for here. And it clearly does seem to be resonating. Uh, we're even trying to get a handle at the Canadian press on, on how the uh, how Indian media here in Canada is responding to that and how they're trying to navigate that tightrope. So it, it really is an interesting approach and one that probably is going to to resonate in some circles and already and already has so that's what really jumped out at me more than the diplomatic back and forth i'm i'm going to re-emphasize again that these are allegations that are being made based on intelligence that have not been made public mm -hmm. but under the assumption that they're true under the assumption that they're true it is a big deal it is a big deal if a foreign government was involved in the killing of a citizen, a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. That is a big, big deal. Very similar to some human rights concerns that I expressed when we were talking about China and the Canadian relationship with China a couple of weeks ago. Human rights are a big, big deal. Sovereignty is a big, big deal. So I am concerned about the possibility of a serious deterioration in both Canada-China relations and Canada-India relations. That said, I understand the position this government would take. So I, I know I'm fence-sitting a little bit here, Joita, but if I were to pose the question of what's your level of concern about Canada's deteriorating relationships with probably two of the most important international trading partners outside of the United States, what's your level of concern? Oh boy, um, it I I think that speaks for itself. But no, I am I am actually going to I am growing increasingly concerned about this. Uh, I um, think we need to really put it into context here. So there's an international power block that's emerging of alternative countries, if you will: India, China, Brazil, Russia. And if you factor in the population of those countries, that's forty two percent of the world's population, and now, Canada is, for all intents and purposes, on the outs with three out of the four players. Yes. We are becoming increasingly isolated. And that has worrying implications uh, for, for trade, for the movement of goods and people, and, uh, and for international stability and security. But the other piece that really bothers me is the fact that none of this is getting resolved. If you think about Canada-China yeah. relationship, it's just there is no thaw on the horizon. There's constantly one thing after another. They take a swipe at us, we take a swipe at them. They take a swipe at us, and we take a swipe a swipe at them. And it, and that's what we see with India and China. If you, uh, so, with with Canada and China, if you think about the India relation and uh, relationship in particular, the tension around sovereignty for the Sikh community. That's a whole other kettle of fish, and oh that issue yeah. has been simmering mm -hmm. since the 1980s. One of the things, and yeah. I can't take credit for this, one of the things that my husband pointed out that I thought was so interesting is that given some of the fears that we had that the, that the Canadian government has in terms of Quebec separatism, as a general rule, 
Canada has not been in support of separatist movements in other countries. Uh, and they hope that other countries will in turn not be willing to support uh, separatism in Quebec. This mm -hmm. I'm sort of very, mm -hmm. I'm oversimplifying it. And so it is very interesting in that context to get the sense that the Canadian government might be willing to support Seek sovereignty. I mean, just it's just an interesting, mm. it's just an interesting sidebar um, because of the tensions that we see in Canada in terms of the relationship with Quebec. But it's so interesting then to complicate, to contemplate the impact of local politics mm. because you know these. Uh, oh, we... uh, the the reason why Canada is taking a softening stance towards Sikh independence has to do with the fact that voters are being con the desires of Indo-Canadian voters are being yeah, taken into consideration. Yeah, the diaspora, yeah. right? Speaking yeah. to the diaspora. Uh, Michelle, Joita just hit something that was so brilliant right there about the emerging relationships in sort of an alternative alignment in the global mm -hmm. economy that is Brazil, that is India, that is China, and even to a certain extent, Russia is part of that equation, South Africa is yep. part of that equation, the African North Korea youth, would be North, part of that. I'm not too worried about North Korea, but, like <laughs> the, but the African Union is part of that relationship relationship now as well like and, and yep. this and this has happened really in the last couple of months i've actually been trying to figure out a way to bring it to this show in a way that's interesting and understandable because it's deeply deeply fascinating so i i am uh, very much aligned with joita in regards to th there needs to be a serious conversation had about about the method by which those relationships are going to be built with these countries that represent a massive, massive, massive piece of the global economy and the future of the global economy. 100%. I don't have a lot to add beyond the great points that Juita already made. This is a, 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 a volatile time, and I think that this India situation really made that divide particularly stark in recent weeks. I, it, you know, Canada does not feel isolated when they're condemning Russia or China. There's lots of support there, even though this is a very thorny issue that has real ramifications. But there is a lot of uh, support for, for sort of opposing those regimes and, and fighting against them and, and their policies and, and imposing sanctions and all these things. Now that India has entered the mix, also a, a bit of a controversial presence on the global stage. But this is a different kettle of fish altogether. And I think it's really made the, the broader public realize how complex this is and then what a difficult position Canada is in. Because I, I, it, it's got to be said, this is not an issue that any one government could wear the blame for or could resolve. Um, mm -hmm. th these are really, really complicated political issues. They go well beyond the scope of any one administration. Uh, there, there's global forces at play that are bringing other governments to power. Uh, there would have to be regime changes in some of these other players as well. So it, it would be disingenuous to pin this on one as one political failing, I think. Uh, but I definitely think there is going to be some kind of political reckoning on this because ultimately the government in power will wear it, fair or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, among all the other issues that this particular government is facing at home in terms of housing pressures and inflationary pressures and whatnot, there's no way that foreign affairs has not entered the conversation yeah. uh, a little further down the line. Okay, let's leave this here. I I've been really careful with this story all week, and I'm going to continue to be careful. This is about as loosey-goosey as I want to get with it. So before we uh, before we walk too far uh, down the cave, let's, let's put a pin in this one and maybe revisit when more concrete information comes out. Coming up after the break, the conversation stays in the world of politics. There's a new federal party that wants to take a centrist approach, at least in its name. 
the three of us will share our thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, and it's the Now News Panel. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I am Dave Brown alongside Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. There is a new federal political party that wants to get into the mix right in the middle. Centerice Canadians has announced the creation of the Canadian Future Party. CIC was founded in 2022 by former federal conservative leadership candidate Rick Peterson. Former New Brunswick progressive conservative provincial cabinet minister Dominic Carty will be the temporary leader. The party will be looking to find a middle ground on policy between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Policies like investment in nuclear energy or increasing the number of immigrants in particular skilled professions are a few. The party ideology would also be rooted in, quote, I'm throwing the air quotes up, fiscal discipline. There's still plenty of work to do before the Canadian Future Party is official from a bureaucratic point of view. The party is targeting 2024 for its launch and leader selection. Joita, I love this topic. What do you want <laughs> to too. explore in this conversation? <laughs> Um, in a nutshell, I think it might be worth contemplating where we're at in terms of uh, Canadian politics. Are we getting more polarized? Is the left becoming too left? Is the right becoming too right? And is there scope for uh, a central, a centrist party to come in and 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 meet in the middle um, and bring together disparate voters? Uh, so it's got it's an interesting idea to see whether uh, the party will actually take off, what its implications might be, whether it'll grow, who the leader is going to be, all of those questions, what kind of policy positions they'll take, but also what the impact of this party might be on the future of uh, of the conservatives and the liberals in particular, and whether it has the potential to shake up mm, the outcome mm. of the next federal election. Mm -hmm. I, I want to unpack all of these things and I'm delighted that we get to do it. Michelle, I want to start here though. What's your perception of the space that actually exists in the political center? It's easy for people to say, oh, we're too polarized. We want centrist policies, bring us together. But who is there who's actually going to be willing to shift their political allegiances? In my opinion, I think there's, there's a huge opportunity here. I think there's a lot of space that this party could occupy and really, really fertile ground to tell. I don't know if I'm going to be alone on this, but I am. I, I do feel pretty strongly about this. Uh, right now, if you look at the, the common perceptions of liberal and conservative leaders is that they are particularly skewed in, in their given direction for their party. Uh, a lot of liberals would say that Justin Trudeau is a particularly left-leaning liberal figure. A lot of people would say Pierre Poiliev is particularly right-leaning and particularly divisive. Both of them have strong, strong, strong detractors, uh, even among party faithful. Mm. So I think that this centrist party is trying to exactly bridge this gap and is playing to exactly those people who are feeling a bit disenfranchised 
by leaders who don't necessarily represent the traditional vision of what those parties stood for and who are looking for someone more along the lines of what we would see in a conservative leader back in, let's mm. say, in the Brian Mulroney kind of days. I feel like that's the kind of demographic they're going for. And I think there's a whole lot of them out there. And I think that there's plenty of room for this party to establish itself if it plays its cards right. Joita, I acknowledge that there is space in the middle. There's lots of space in the middle. And I also feel there are probably a couple of voters out there who are comfortable saying, I'm a centrist, mm -hmm. but I'm not all the way convinced that they're actually going to be switching political allegiances. And as this conversation evolves a little bit, I'll, I'll maybe explain my position a little bit better based on the electoral <laughs> system that we have in place. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that people are actually going to move where they cast their vote. Yeah, I think you've nailed it. I think the problem in terms of the expansion of this party or the influence that it might have is less to do with the fact that it might be enticing to voters who would say, oh, finally, someone who isn't ultra left or finally someone who isn't ultra right. I think the real issue is the is the is the system for voting that we have in place. We still have first past the post uh, <laughs> rather than proportional <laughs> representation. Yeah. And that means that they're going to have a very tough time breaking through, which is probably the reason why uh, the vote the votes won't galvanize in in the way that the party would have ideally been able to see happen. But I think that has more to do with how we actually, with our system for voting than yeah. anything else. Yeah, I, I, believe me, I will flip this table over as we talk about proportional <laughs> representation, but I, I just don't think that's going to be meaningful for the audience at home. Uh, Juita, you used a word that I love breakthrough, especially when you're talking about a new party. And, 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 and we'll talk about leaders in a second, guys, but I want to talk about the notion of what it takes for a party to break through, because it's not that long ago in Canadian federal politics that the People Party, the People's Party of Canada picked up over 800,000 votes in a federal election and picked up over 5% of the popular vote, got way more votes than the Green Party, but walked away with zero seats. But the People's Party of Canada, for whatever warts they had and whatever warts Maxime Bernier had, found an issue that galvanized people, and that was vaccination and the pandemic. They found a single issue, and it galvanized people. So for my mind, Michelle, what it takes for a party to break through is a singular galvanizing issue, and then maybe you can build from there. But it gets complicated to build. Just ask the Green Party about that. Mm -hmm. But Michelle, what, does it yeah. what do you think it takes for a new party to actually break through? Not just a galvanizing issue. I totally agree with you on that, but effective messaging that is succinct and concrete. I think this party is going to have to be very pragmatic in its approach that they're, they're branding themselves as such. And if they want to position themselves as a viable alternative, they're going to have to come to the table with easily articulated solutions. So something like, let's say, a carbon taxing scheme that sank the likes of Stéphane Dion as a liberal leader, for instance, wouldn't fly with a new party. You need someone who's going to be able to explain what you're after really quickly and really simply. And I think that's going to be important. And I don't think we can, I know we're going to get into it later, but I don't think we can rule out the importance of a leader who oh, can speak certainly. to people and resonate with them. So I think that's another crucial factor that will have to be considered. And I just wanted to close the loop really quickly on one thing you mentioned about party allegiance around all this stuff is I think... It kind of in support of my own point that I think people are disenchanted with the existing parties and those brands are all tarnished. Every one of them has mm, a certain mm. amount of taint and baggage to it. Mm -hmm. And 
well, regardless of what you think of the Canadian Future Party as a name, I think there is potentially some appeal in a brand without any of that kind of uh, tarnish on it. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, this is why I find the conversation so deeply interesting because totally. again, yeah, I do acknowledge is... the space and I do acknowledge the policy. Uh, Joita, I'm going to give you the chance to, the, the, I'll let you split the focus on this question, both the what it takes for a new party to break through, and I'll give you first crack at who you think could actually be a leader mm. for this party. Mm -hmm. well, I think you've summarized the issues about what it takes to break through really well. So I'm going to actually move on to talking about the leadership yeah, please, question. Please. And I think... Um, Right now, if I were a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were a betting man, I'd say uh, your most likely candidate for party leader is, in fact, Dominic Cardi. Now, Dominic Cardi totally. is interesting, started out with uh, being a leader in the New Brunswick NDP, uh, was a centrist, uh, moved on from that to, uh, in fact, went on to join the Tories instead, became a cabinet minister and then got pushed out last year. Um, he is one of the few people associated with the party that has name recognition and is well known, I would say, across Atlantic Canada, but maybe not beyond that, but is certainly mm. a strong contender. I believe Peter Kent has also joined, but then he's in his 70s. So who's to say that he wants to become party leader? I mean, hey, 70 is the new 50, so you never know. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say maybe Peter Kent is a possibility. It, it would really need someone with a big public profile to come yeah. in and, and sweep everybody off their feet. But nobody like, I don't know, like Peter Mackay or Jean Charest, like they're not signing up. But yeah. if someone, if one of them threw their hat in the ring, they might become party it's, leader, but that's not happening. It's interesting you mentioned Peter Mackay because just two weekends ago, he really threw his support behind Pierre Polyev in the Conservative Party. So like he is marching in that direction. Is, you, yeah. you did say Jean Charest. I, I wonder if there might be some value there as a former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, a liberal premier of Quebec, uh, a uh, leadership candidate for the Conservative Party in the most recent leadership run. I just think, again, you're talking about someone who's maybe a little bit older and the brand doesn't quite carry what it carried, say, 20 years ago when he burst yeah. onto the scene in mm -hmm. Quebec politics provincially. Um, there's also just a lot of people, as you look at this party, that are really made up of progressive conservatives or people who were formerly under that label. But yeah. I did a little bit of digging here and I found out that at one of these center ice uh, uh, center ice coalition uh, events last year, former BC Premier Christy Clark uh, presented. Now, the, the, B, the BC Liberal Party is not necessarily the Liberal yeah, Party as you think about it. But, yeah, but again, it's, it's, it's part of, it's, it's sort of like part of that continuum. You're thinking about progressive conservative leaders who are maybe on the provincial scene. But I've got one for you guys here. Michelle, I'm going to give you a chance to weigh in on this in a second, but I've got one for you guys. Because I think if this party really wants to make a splash, they've got to go bring in an actual liberal, like an actual federal yep. liberal person. Yep, I and agree. The, and the person that I have in mind is Jody Wilson-Raybould. Oh. I don't know if her politics oh. will align with their politics, but you know she would take a swipe at the federal liberals. You know she'd be comfortable mm -hmm. taking a swipe at the federal conservatives, I wonder if someone like Jody Wilson-Raybould, who is a tremendous communicator and was a tremendous politician, uh, even if things ended a little bit poorly for her, uh, sort of <laughs> uh, taking her own party down from the inside, but I think someone like Jody Wilson-Raybould, Michelle, could actually be really, really strong if this party really wanted to make a dent. 
super interesting take. Uh, and by the mm. same argument, you could you could probably put Jane Philpott's name forward on similar grounds. Um, anyway, but it, it is a really interesting thought. I'm in a slightly different direction in that I kind of I I, I feel that they're trying to to attract the attention of the likes of a Jean Charest or like a John Tory who was former mayor of Toronto and was a prominent Ontario uh, politician for quite some time. Uh, people who would have identified themselves as red Tories back in the day. I feel like that's who they're courting, but I kind of also feel like they need to uh, go in a different direction with this and bring in someone who doesn't have a lot of baggage. If this is a new party, I think they would probably benefit from a fresher face or one with less baggage. To that end, I kind of agree with Joey that Dominic Cardi is perfect because he has straddled a lot of those lines, um, both as an NDP and a conservative leader. He's very plain spoken. Uh, a very colorful character in politics and and would actually probably make a pretty compelling leader. Uh, I would also think that the party might uh, could do probably worse than finding some people in Alberta who maybe are are not feeling the love for Danielle Smith and her administration and want to take a different approach. Because I do think making a breakthrough in the West is going to be important for this party's fortunes if they want to make any real inroads, especially on the conservative front. They're going to have to win over some people um, in in Western Canada, for sure, and in suburban ridings, uh, suburban urban ridings, you know, Vancouver suburbs, Toronto suburbs. All of those ridings have have proven to be really important swing ones and tend to carry elections. So they're going to have to find a leader, uh, no... Patrick Brown actually just came to mind now as another potential one, uh, a younger conservative who's now the mayor of one of those communities that they would like to win over. Oh, that's, uh, that's politics have proven kind of malleable over over the years. So I think uh, there are lots of potential directions it could go, all of which have a certain amount of merit, I think. Uh, Juita, I want to give you an opportunity here because I can tell you were not overly impressed by my Jody Wilson-Raybould argument. Uh, you said something there on Patrick Brown, but I didn't quite hear you. Well, no, Patrick Brown is an interesting choice. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould would be a cool choice, <laughs> but I'm not sure it's the most, it's the, <laughs> yeah. it's a practical choice. I don't know if it play well with the, the right leaning. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, and well she, has the... all, she does have a lot of name recognition, but she also has a lot of baggage. I mean, for a, yeah. like for a party that is trying to get established, would they want someone at the helm who's willing to take the party down from the inside? It's a good point. Uh, That's a good point. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, I think I think Joita and I kind of made our position clear on this just based on where the, the how the electoral system in Canada works, Michelle. But short and long-term prospects for a new party, for this new party, the Canadian Future Party. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think we're looking at a party that's going to be forming government in 2025. Uh, it takes a long time for parties to generally establish some kind of breakthrough. I do think this one has potential to potentially have that uh, that moment of that we have arrived moment faster than most, uh, just given my own belief about the kind of space and the kind of territory they could occupy here. Um, but short-term prospects, I don't think we're going to see them having a major splash for at least uh, the next couple, you know, maybe three or four elections. Um, but it's hard to say because political landscapes are unrecognizable today even from what they were 10 years ago. Yeah, so um, yeah. <laughs> I, I always feel like I'm kind of taking shots in the dark with these kinds of questions. Yeah, J- but uh, I do I do think they're long-term viable, but it, we won't see it quickly. Yeah, Juita, I also think this probably is more of a long-term situation, more than a short-term situation. But I'll go back yeah. to what I said before. They, they've got to find one or two issues, one or two policies, and really 
hit them hard and effectively. And it's got to be creative. I'm sorry, investing in nuclear energy is not creative. Uh, investing in more skilled skilled labor from immigration point of view, the liberals are already doing that, right? Like, yeah. like they've got yeah. to find something that really differentiates themselves if they want to have a short-term or a long-term breakthrough. I don't know if it'll really differentiate them, but maybe they should take up proportional representation as their cause. I, I know if oh. memory serves me when the Liberals came to power in 2015, they said they would change the system, yeah, but did. then they did a yeah, study did. and said, sorry, no can do. Uh, I think we talk about the short-term implications. Uh, we would be unwise to conclude the conversation without talking about uh, Justin Trudeau and Pierre Polyevre, uh, both of whom are seen as being res- respectively more left-leaning and more right-leaning than their predecessors. This speaks to my earlier point about polarization in Canadian politics. Now, Justin Trudeau's been around uh, as prime minister for almost 10 years, been leader of the Liberal Party for a little bit longer than that. He may well step down as prime minister ahead of the next election. I'm not going to, to... to hang my hat on that pronouncement, but it is possible that after 10 years in office and given that the Liberals are lagging in the polls, that he might step down and we might see somebody else step up, uh, Christian Freeland, for example. And that might really uh, change the support base for the Liberal Party. And it is worth noting that uh, the the centrist party that we're talking about has a lot of buy-in from the PC community, but Liberals haven't really jumped on board, which speaks to your point about trying to court a leader uh, with Liberal leanings. But that hasn't happened yet. And of course, it's also worthwhile to see how uh, things play out with Pierre Polyevre, who I suspect will stick around. Yeah, um, I think but, he will too. Oh yeah, you know. he's going to. Yeah. That, that, so that party, I, I that think that party is, that party whatever like whoever's sort of straggling that that party for the most part is deeply behind him right now he's 100%. he's he's yeah. one he's one over the church the choir the ushers the the people in the parking Everybody. lot he's like they are behind him <laughs> through and through right now that convention a couple weekends ago made it very very clear yeah, and I think it's, it's so. It's going to be really interesting to see whether Justin Trudeau sticks around and runs uh, as leader of the Liberals for the next election, uh, because if he doesn't and somebody else steps up, it might actually mean that this party will have to that the centrist party will have to wait in the wings a little bit yeah. longer, because you might see a resurgence in support for the Liberals, but behind a different leader. We'll have to wait and see. I, I like that. Wait and see. Only time will tell. My favorite media cliche. All right, guys, uh, let's let's uh, head over to commercial break here so we can get one more topic in before the news panel wraps up. Coming up next, there are some privacy issues coming to light after Canada Post was caught sharing some consumer data. Michelle, Juita, and I will weigh in on that matter. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Juita Gupta and Michelle Michelle McQuig. I'm really good at talking for a living. One more topic on the docket here and only about four minutes to talk about it. The federal privacy watchdog says Canada Post is breaking the law by gleaning information from envelopes and packages to help 
build marketing lists that it rents to businesses. Privacy Commissioner Philippe Dufresne says information collected for the marketing program includes data about where individuals live and what types of online shopping they do. The commissioner found Canada Post has not obtained authorization from individuals to indirectly collect this personal information. Michelle, I'm curious, how comfortable are you with this practice by Canada Post, sort of lifting some data so you can yeah. get more junk mail? Yeah, not not a fan. I, I was kind of taken aback when I heard about this process and then this practice. Uh, my understanding, I know addresses are, are relatively easy to obtain in most cases, uh, but I think there's a pretty key proviso here about you being able to consent to to receiving lists or, or having this information used for certain purposes. And that is not the express purpose that you're consenting to when you send a package to someone or take delivery of a package. So I have big problems with the with the practice itself and the presumption of, of consent and involvement there. Um, it seems like a pretty shady practice. And especially if the net result is more junk mail, that is also concerning. And yet I find myself in a bit of a bind because I know that junk mail and distributing advertising and whatnot is one of the key revenue drivers for Canada Post, who is far from profitable. They've been turning losses for years now. Mm -hmm. And I am at a bit of a loss as to what other revenue streams they could go for here. So yeah, I recognize yeah. what they were trying to do with this effort. Um, but I do think that the privacy commissioner was kind of onto something by flagging this practice. Yeah, Joita, I really have a distaste for junk mail from an environmental mm. point of view. I'm like, mm, what a sure. waste this is. Mm. But much like Michelle, I can tie myself in the pretzel that says, but I also would like Canada Post to like have enough revenue to like continue to pay mm. their workers relatively well and offer like pretty good service across the board. Like I like Canada Post. I just don't like this practice yeah no for sure i think it'd be hard pressed to find someone who does and uh, even though we all cringe at the infringement of our privacy in some ways this practice is ubiquitous think about facebook or google and the amount of data they they scrape and pass on to advertisers and um, but yes there should be safeguards and protections for consumers here whether it is the uh, ability to consent and so receiving informed consent or even to opt out is a is a good practice yeah. which at least in yeah. theory exists for facebook and google uh but yes i think the elephant in the room is that this is a very profitable revenue stream for canada post uh and other ideas that have been floated have not taken off one of the ideas that was suggested is the um, that canada post should get into banking uh but that has been something that the big banks have unsurprisingly yeah. heavily pushed back yeah. against. Yeah. The Canada Post could also potentially compete with Amazon by getting into um, getting into sales. They have warehouse, they have people. Uh, but there is, and I think we'll have to sort of put this one in an envelope and mail it to a future news panel, uh, there is some ideological resistance to um, a crown corporation that is seen to be doing too much and competing with the private sector. Yeah. So, yeah. and if I can, well, and if I can just jump in on, on the that table, too. but yeah, there are solutions on the table though. Michelle, last thought. I, I, also, I just wanted to note the fact that Canada Post was for a long time making profits on the strength of its packaging business, and that has dried up in recent years. So, mm. I think it's its runway for competing with Amazon might have gotten a lot shorter recently too. Mm -hmm. Okay, it is ten o'clock on the nose. Michelle has to go to her actual job, and Joita has to go do her actual job, <laughs> and I just get to keep sitting here and talking junk. Joita, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you. You too, Michelle. Thank you as well. Have a great weekend. Talk to you on Monday morning.
Sounds good. Take care, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. That's the real job that she has to get to. And Jody Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. That's the real job she has to get to as well. Coming up after the break, I just get to have a little bit of fun. It's a real job, but it's not really a real job. I'm going to uh, make fun of some premieres as part of the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.